Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 150. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are joined tonight by our very dear friends from Detour to Neverland, Brendan and Catherine. Guys, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you so much for having us on. We're excited to be here. Yeah, and 150, I feel like that's a big deal. Yeah, it's crazy that here we are nearly three years later from concept to getting to this point. And like so much happened because we were doing this like we would have never gotten to know you guys and like spent a meal in the parks and like things like that and friendships and all of these other things that just come from this um i know that you've said the same thing about detour it's almost hard to believe because you guys started literally i think within a week of us so you're just about three years in now and you're you're living down by the world you're living the dream so it's it's we kind of have that contrast where it's like, I can't believe in such a short period of time what has amounted from all of this. It is pretty insane. It's uh, And then a Disneyland trip sandwich in there where we had those like a week apart, I think is what <laughs> connected us on social media. Yeah. So it's been a crazy three years. But yeah, congratulations to you guys. We've enjoyed watching you guys grow and, and share the content that you love over the past three years. What I can't believe is that We've never had you guys on for a review before in these three years. I mean, you've come on to Countdown Disney Dogs with us, which was such a fun episode. You've come on for our 100, which was a big episode for us. And we got to talk about what films that we would show Walt Disney. But we haven't had you guys on yet to do the whole enchilada. And, and I'm really yeah. glad that you picked this movie. Yeah, when we found out that you guys love Tarzan, there's a handful of movies that you guys love, but to find out that this one was something that you guys really were passionate about, we were like, this just makes so much sense because this movie, I remember when it came out, it was such a big deal. I remember it because it's 1999. I was 13 years old. This was like peak pop culture this year because it was the boy band rivalry and I can't even tell you how happy I was that NSYNC got this over Backstreet Boys because of their harmony I, I took it like as a personal victory but who won in the end <laughs> alright Brendan fine the Backstreet Boys are still touring and we can't get Justin to come back fine think about that they have new kids on the block All right, touring Sean. Right. No. And 98 Degrees is coming back, too. Yeah, yeah but all they do Dude. is perform and sing songs at their show. I have seen 98 Degrees perform at SeaWorld. Don't ask me why. They did their song for Mulan. They did Bye Bye Bye. And then they did a Backstreet Boys medley. It was ridiculous, but it was awesome. But talk about an iconic scene. That Trash in the Camp, I know we'll get to it. Anybody who grew up in the 90s and watched that remembers that scene to this day. Absolutely. I, know. I feel like... When you said we were getting to do Tarzan, we were hype. And it gave us a good reason to watch it. We watched it today, so it would be fresh in our mind. And we are excited. So this was one that I did not watch a lot because 1999, I'm 13 years old. So it's that kind of weird in-between where it's like you're, you, you still kind of like Disney, but you don't really like Disney. It, it, everybody, I think at the age of 13 kind of goes through that. So this was a movie that I watched. 
I remember I liked it. I liked the music because I liked Phil Collins. And then I did not revisit this until, believe it or not, the morning we got back from Disneyland a couple of years ago because we took the red eye from California back into Kennedy Airport and you fell asleep. I was wide awake because I can't sleep when the sun is out. And I watched Tarzan because I believe their Swiss family treehouse is themed after Tarzan, if I remember correctly. Correct. So I was like, all right, I'm going to revisit this. And it wasn't until then that I watched it again and obviously watched it this week for the show. Was this a big one for you, though? Um, well, I guess the age does have a little bit to do with it because it was bigger for me because of NSYNC. Like, I remember, and I'm surprised that this is why it didn't hook you right away. I remember these promos. I mean, they were pimping NSYNC out to do all the advertisements. But the other big thing was like, we're going to have Tarzan surfing on the trees. And I remember they made such a big deal of like, we studied Tony Hawk videos to make him skate along the surface of the tree. And like, I'm surprised that like the BMX aspect of it didn't hook you in. Honestly, I think because they relied on NSYNC so much, that when that was not my jam. You know what I'm saying? I but was Phil going Collins should have been like the bigger draw for you. Yeah, but they weren't putting Phil Collins out there the way they were in sync. You know what I'm saying? Like I was They don't have to. He's not gonna do it. I understand that, but I think that for from a marketing standpoint, a thirteen year old boy is not gonna jump at something the same way a thirteen year old girl is if you go, and we have Justin Timberlake. Back in all of his ramen head glory. But well, I can tell you right now, that haircut doesn't hold up. But the question is, does this film hold up all of these years later? This review is sponsored by the Hidden Mickey Supply Co. Products include Disney and Pixar-inspired 3D straw charms. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Visit Instagram or Etsy, search for Hidden Mickey Supply Co., and shop for all of your straw charm needs. After his parents are killed by a leopard, Tarzan is taken in by Kala, a female gorilla, even though her mate Kerchek does not approve. As Tarzan grows up, he tries desperately to fit in, but inadvertently keeps finding himself in more trouble, which continues to upset Kerchek. One day, Jane Porter, her father Archimedes, and William Clayton arrive in the jungle to study gorillas, but instead find Tarzan after he rescues Jane from a family of baboons. Jane and her father are interested in learning more about Tarzan, while Clayton is only interested in using him to get to the gorillas. Over time, Tarzan learns what it means to be human, and he takes a liking to Jane. When a boat arrives to retrieve them, Clayton convinces Tarzan that Jane will stay with him if she sees the gorillas. So Tarzan exposes the gorillas and upsets Kerchek. Kala shows Tarzan the home that once belonged to Tarzan and his parents, and Tarzan then decides that he is going to leave for London with Jane. Clayton and the crew, however, double-cross them and capture Jane, her father, and Tarzan, and begin to capture the gorillas. It's at that point that Tantor and Turk, who were friends of Tarzan growing up, Turk was really more a sibling than anything else, they jump on the boat, free Tarzan, and he, Jane, and her father begin freeing the gorillas from the cages that Clayton has put them in. Clayton kills Kerchek before dying as well. Tarzan assumes his place in the gorilla hierarchy, and Jane and her father decide that they are going to stay with him in the jungle. They do not go to the man village. <laughs> so when they announced that they were doing this story, 
I remember being sort of uh, surprised because Disney up to this point had done all of the princess films and they did Toy Story, which obviously was a buddy show, you know, it was a buddy movie. Um, but I thought that it was kind of strange that they were tackling something called Tarzan. It's not like Treasure Planet where you know they're doing this spin of Treasure Island. For all intents and purposes, this, to me, at least as a kid, felt like they were just doing a remake of sort of an outdated film series. I also didn't realize that Georgia the Jungle came out two years prior to this. And so it was something like an adaptation of the same story that they were going after. I didn't realize that either. I believe this is 1999, right? Yeah, so this yeah. was. George of the Jungle did come before this one did. No, and didn't they, like, fairly recently, maybe it wasn't a Disney film, though, they had that other adaptation of the Jungle Book. It was a live-action Jungle Book. And they, they, it was Rudyard Kipling's Jungle Book. Yes. Right. Yeah, yeah, I remember when that had come out. Obviously not Favreau's. That came years later. I don't think it was a Disney remake, but... Um, yeah, these all came out around the same time. But I think that has to do with, you know, we're in the post-Renaissance thinking about where we are in Disney history. And at this point, they are they know they have a growing audience that they have to maintain, but they're also still trying to hook in boys because it had that very much a reputation for, for being more geared towards little girls. So we jump right in with, really, it's, it's a very startling start to the film right because you have Tarzan and his parents they come ashore they're building this tree house and then it seems like they're getting ready to start this almost Swiss family life and here comes this leopard and I remember as a kid being so surprised and, and even in a revisit so surprised of this brutal discovery that Kala makes it was kind of startling to see as a kid yeah, they totally rip off Swiss Family Robinson in that they use the shipwreck to build the house. Um, but so much is happening, and they waste no time getting to the action, even with the shipwreck. It's, you know, the mother, Tarzan's mother barely makes it out with him. They're waiting on the father to get into the lifeboat. Um, the ship explodes. It's a pretty intense sequence, especially when you compare it to something, because they've got the Phil Collins song going underneath it. So when you compare it to something like The Lion King, where you've got your big pop star singing the opening number, you've got the circle of life, and it's just this beautiful sequence of all these animals coming together and Simba being born. And now you've got this. You've got, not that Phil Collins, I'm not going to call him a pop star, but you've got the same big-name musician singing the opening track. They're jamming so much action into it. And then they really go for that shock value. Like I was always surprised, especially as, you know, I'm not going to say a kid, but when I was younger, I was always surprised that they went, they really went for it showing the bodies. And it packs such a punch because it's not like a Disney movie where you meet the main character and the parents are already gone. I mean, we don't have that much time to get emotionally invested in these parents, but it's not like a Cinderella where she already doesn't have a mother or, even something more recent like Frozen where we spend a lot of time with the parents before they take them out. So it's very jarring. We made the same con comment that we didn't remember that they actually showed the bodies whenever Kala 
walks in there. And the other scene that stood out to us at the very beginning was Kala losing her baby as well. And that was more startling to me as an adult than I remembered. Yeah, I mean, they definitely did not waste any time making you make that emotional connection with them because Tarzan goes through this horrific experience, Kala goes through that horrific experience, and I feel like, I mean, it was extremely jarring. I mean, I, like, shouted when I recognized that the bodies were there because I remembered, like, the footprints and the blood on the ground. And then I look over, and it was the bodies. And I was like, what is Disney doing? What is happening? And not to jump ahead, but when Tarzan goes back and he's in the treehouse, we're like, well, just ignore those cadavers rotting in the corner as you come back. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't think that they had an undertaker available that was going to properly bury these bodies. I don't think Kerchak was going to jump in and and volunteer that responsibility. No, and he comes out wearing his father's suit. I mean, I don't think that that's what he was wearing when he was attacked. I'm f- fairly certain it's it wasn't. face right now. Oh, God, I hope not. I didn't even think about that, but you bring up a good point. I mean, Where yeah, was he, that suit? Exactly. Like, I, I mean, I would assume it came from something off the ship. Okay, fine, but you're basically, you're practically taking it from the cadaver it's a man that you've never met granted he is your father and you just walk out wearing his perfectly tailored suit by the way (laughs) might as well the magic of disney (laughs) i forgot that they do reference the fact that kala and kerchak lost one it wasn't until we watched it again yesterday that i kind of like did the same thing like i didn't gasp out loud but i had like that pit in my stomach where I'm like, wow, they are really, really going for it here. It's a double take moment for sure. But I hate that they sort of bury that line. I mean, there is a ton going on in these first three, four minutes of screen time. And for such a a heavy issue, it's just such a one-off line. I think it's something that should have been handled with a bit more care. Because it's a trigger for some people. The only thing I thought that was a big takeaway from that scene is it made me buy into Kerchek more because he was there for Kala through the experience. And it wasn't, you know, he's obviously very hardened and hard. Tarzan is trying to please him throughout the entire movie. And you can see that he does have that a more emotional side that he buries when he and Kala are dealing with that together. Yeah, I mean, I think that's also partially why he was so like hardened to the idea of Tarzan is because he truly did see it as like, this is not going to replace that. Like I can't just take in Tarzan and forget the fact that we just lost our baby. Like it's not like a one for one kind of thing. It is a good character moment for sure though, because I think that's why he lets, I mean, obviously it's why he lets Kala take him not with the idea of replacing the child that they lost, but more so in the fact that he's got a soft spot for her and what she's been through. I don't think any of the other gorillas in the herd may have necessarily gotten away with something like this. Yeah, I I think you're right because Disney knows how to cut right to the core, right? They know... The core of the apple, Sarah. They know how to do it. Um, But I think that because you've, you've now brought up that they lost one. We've had this brutal discovery in this treehouse. I'm not sure that they needed to spend too much more time 
focusing on that. I mean, I get what you're saying, and it is something that should be handled with a little bit more care, but I'm not sure that it needed too much more attention in what is otherwise supposed to be a more lighthearted movie, in spite of the fact that now I can't get the idea of these two cadavers out of my mind. <laughs> well, you're welcome. <laughs> and, you know, it's weird to talk about, but a big thing that kind of you notice as an adult with Lion King and here is that all of these people in the pack are siblings. There's only one male. And props to Disney for going for it twice. Like, you got away with it once in Lion King with the audience basically going over their head, and you did it again later on without us really realizing. I guess there wasn't a love interest between two inside, like like in Lion King. (laughs) I just actually learned something that is going to ruin Lion King. Uh-oh. So I'm, I think I'm going to take y'all down with me right okay. now. Okay. So in like real life, like your Nat Geo real life, hyenas don't actually eat lions. If a lion in the pride dies, it's usually consumed by the rest of them. So cut to Scar singing, I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. What's on his hand? I don't... A skull? A skull. Whose? <laughs> it just made the movie better. You didn't ruin anything. It's a little darker. It's a lot darker. I wish I would have taken That's a picture of your face. something that you wouldn't notice as a kid, though. That goes whoop right over your head. Oh, yeah. it's. I mean, even as an adult, I mean, I just heard this. I didn't, like, know that about lions. But when you put it all together like that, I was like, oh, my God. And I'm supposed to talk about Mr. Invisible Touch later in this wonderful soundtrack. Between that and Brendan, I, I, don't, even, I don't even know anymore. We have gone off the rails, and I love it. Okay, so let's talk about something that I think Disney does really well in this movie. Because you've seen this happen a hundred thousand times. And we have used this term so often, the 90s all-knowing child quip machine. And sometimes when you show these coming-of-age moments and you have your lead as an adolescent and they're getting in trouble, it's something that I feel more times than not is not really done right. Because I don't feel any sympathy towards the character. It's almost like they're trying too hard to establish that this kid causes trouble and he kind of just keeps stepping on his own two feet and he doesn't understand why. They made Junior Tarzan here, little Tarzan, they made him so endearing. And I don't think that has to do with Turk. I feel like he on his own is so much fun to watch and I buy that this is how he would have truly been raised in the jungle by these gorillas now perhaps that's because you do have this sympathy factor because of what happens in the first five minutes of the movie but I thought they did a really good job of making him so likable as a child yes thankfully because this is where the film is kind of brought down a peg for me because we knew that Kerchak was never ever going to easily accept Tarzan. So the very likable endearing kid is juxtaposed against 
Kerchek blaming him for literally everything when it's an accident. And I feel like it starts to drag a little bit because there are so many incidents that he gets blamed for that were not truly his fault. And when you compare it to something like The Jungle Book, where we spend an entire hour and change saying Mowgli doesn't belong here, we got to get him to the man village, that doesn't drag. But this five minutes, even with a lively song and being lightened by Turk, it just, it drags on forever for me because it's just like, oh my God, Kerchak, lighten up. Well, and I think they lay the groundwork early on that the other gorillas, you know, the ones around his age are not really accepting him. And I think that's maybe, you know, if you point out plot holes, that's something that I don't think comes up later on, that it just, maybe it's when he takes down the leopard, that's when they fully accept him. But I don't feel like they explicitly ever came back and said, you know, because it wasn't him pulling the hair off the elephant. That wasn't like the redeeming moment that they all said, one of us. <laughs> like, it was, you know, I guess that's my point. You can't really tell when is that moment where they fully bring him in to the group. I mean, part of me would say it's honestly not even until the very end of the movie. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of ways that you could look at that. To where, like, are they truly accepting? Or is it more just like they tolerate him kind of thing? Well, and you almost get the sense a lot of times it's that they're doing it more as a favor to Kala because they know what she's been through. Like, they're being soft with her, knowing that this means a lot to her. Well, and probably knowing that you're not going to get rid of him. Like, what are you going to do with him now? He's kind of stuck. See, that's so interesting that you said that, Brendan, because I had always looked at it completely different that their maternal instinct has them siding with Kala, but their fear of Kerchek and him being their protector, they're not going to go against him. So it's not until, and I, that's where I agree with Catherine too, It's I, I kind of feel like it's not until the very end either when he does sort of replace Kerchek as the male in this tribe. Which is sort of funny because... The whole reason why Kerchek is gone is, I mean, I, I don't want to jump too far to the end of the movie, but just let me throw this out there. The whole reason why Kerchek is gone is kind of because of Tarzan, if you really think about it. But you're right. It it kind of, it begs the question. I kind of thought what Brendan thought when he comes up with that leopard. I think that's when they started turning the tide, but seeing that Kerchek was not impressed at all when that happened, I feel like, it's to your point where now, as much as they want to give him his credit and give him his due, they still can't do it because anything that they do that benefits Tarzan goes against Kerchak. Right. Now, let me ask you guys this question, because it wasn't until yesterday that I kind of started to make the connection, specifically when, and, and again, Brendan, to your point, with the other gorillas not really accepting him, and we're not sure exactly why, it sort of just seems like it's conflict for conflict's sake. Is this too similar to Hercules? Because as you'll remember, Hercules as an adolescent was not, they were calling him Jercules. They were not accepting him because he was different. Because remember, he wanted to throw the frisbee with them, and they wouldn't let him do it. And. Obviously, he he made that huge mess, but I I kind of thought that they may have been pulling a little too much influence 
from Hercules for two movies that came out um, not quite side by side, but within a couple of years of each other. I thought that the uh, I thought that the plot point that they were trying to make there was almost a little too similar. And I'm interested to know what you guys have to say about that. I can kind of buy it up to a certain extent where I lose you is just thinking about their situations that Hercules is like, I mean, literally the golden boy, like, you know, they're all jealous of him because of his life situation. But, but they didn't know, did they? Like those kids that wouldn't play with him, they didn't know that he was a god. Oh, well, maybe I'm not remembering Hercules all the way. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but Tarzan is kind of like the ugly duckling situation. But maybe if Hercules is in that same boat, then yeah, I 100% agree. I didn't think Hercules at all. I, I really, the two movies that come to mind for comps would be Jungle Book in the beginning and then not to get too far ahead, but Pocahontas in the back end of it because situations just escalate so quickly because people aren't communicating. Could be. Uh. But Hercules is a good comparison. I don't know. Maybe Buddy the Elf is a better comparison. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) This took a turn I wasn't expecting. (laughs) That happens here more often than not. We'll have you on again. Get used to it. This happens. Wait till he finds a way to compare this to Ghostbusters and or Batman. No, I've been, I've been well behaved. I don't think I have a tie in there, but challenge accepted. We're still pretty early here. Let's talk about the scene that we were kind of discussing before, where now we have Tarzan as an adult, and he he gets this leopard. It's a huge character moment for him, for in my opinion, for two reasons. The first, he is starting to prove himself to this pack of gorillas. The other thing, and he doesn't realize that he did it, I sort of get the feeling that he avenged his parents. They never come out and say it's the same leopard, but he didn't take out a cheetah. He didn't take out a jaguar. He took out a leopard. I mean, I think it's safe to assume this is the same one. So it's kind of interesting to me that you have this moment where it should be such a victory for him and he and it is but he doesn't understand the full scope as to why well i feel like it's even a big deal too i mean you just talked about avenging i did have that same thought when we were watching it but even so for kerchak and kala because they know that it was the same leopard that killed their baby too so you'd think in that moment you would have gotten more of a reaction from kerchak i feel like that's what i missed from it is not that I expected him to completely accept him in that moment, but at least more of like a thanks, I guess. See, I kind of got the impression that he was about to, like he was about to open up his arms and welcome him in, but then Clayton shot the gun and that like interrupted it and they couldn't have their moment. But I feel like you still could have made time for it. It's a big <laughs> moment. Maybe it happened off camera. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm actually reading into this completely differently because I think that the reason they're not celebrating it too much is that we start to see Tarzan 
picking up these human characteristics. Like instead of just eating fruit, he makes the spear. So he is using his ingenuity a little bit, which is something that man has that they don't. And I think part of it, like, yes, they're happy that he killed the leopard, but I think part of it is that they're fearful of what that could mean. And then cut to, boom, Clayton's gun. Now you see man making his weapons, and now man has come to the jungle. So that that was always kind of my bigger takeaway from it, is that they're never, you know, it's just another peg that they're going to knock Tarzan down because he is still a man, and they're they're always going to be afraid of that on some level see i'm curious and this is a hypothetical because we can't answer this because we can't erase things from our mind but would we would you still feel that way if you had never seen jungle book because what you're describing is a lot of mowgli's tricks and like what they're scared of so i would want to show this movie to someone who's never seen jungle book and see if they get that same impression right because in Favreau's live action that's where he's yeah he makes the bowl I think to get water and they really get and he on does him the for, shortcuts yeah they they give him a lot of grief for his tricks so actually I can say that I sort of looked at it very differently because I grew up on Jungle Book but I didn't grow up with this so I feel like because I was, I personally was so far removed from this movie for so long, I didn't necessarily connect the two. And certainly at the time that the movie came out, you're right. Looking at it now, it's it's interesting. If people have seen the original Jungle, Jungle Book, now Favreau, but until Favreau's came out and they focused more on how is he doing this, how is he doing this, and and he's drawing attention to himself because they go to the watering hole. That's the whole thing with the tricks, right? Mm-hmm. Without that, I, I probably wouldn't have drawn a connection to Jungle Book, although this, I mean, yeah, it's it's got a lot of similarities, right? I mean, at the root of it, it's young boy lost in jungle starts growing up. It's just that we actually see Tarzan grow up, whereas Mowgli heads off to the man village. I don't know... Yeah, I, I think that the Jungle Book maybe is influencing what I'm thinking now a little bit. But I think even watching this my first time around, like that was something that I had just always remembered was that they were never going to fully accept him because he's still a man. And regardless of like making the tools and all of that, it's still co- like Clayton is coming on the heels of that. So if there was any sort of, okay, the gorillas are going to let the wall down, it, it's gone in an instant because of Clayton. Which, by the way, I love that that becomes what Tarzan names the gunfire. That is funny. <laughs> yeah. Still Something funny. I, I had a question about, and this is the last time we see him, so I think it's the appropriate time to bring it up. So Sabor, the leopard... Obviously, they don't give him any dialogue. He doesn't speak. He can't communicate with the gorillas. Do you like that? That basically the only two beings that can talk. Well, and but then you throw in Tantor, and he got the elephants. So I don't know. Like the the baboons can't talk, but the humans can, and the gorillas can, but they can't communicate. I almost felt like either all animals talk or all animals don't talk. And I would have, I. People are going to roll their eyes because it keeps coming back to Jungle Book. But, like, I wanted a Shere Khan. I wanted Sabor to be a, a Shere Khan to explain why he was hunting them. Counterpoint. Here's why I like it. Because 
I I love Shere Khan. Jungle Book is one of my favorite Disney films, and he's a great character, great villain. What I do like about the baboons and the leopard not having a voice is that even though we're even though these are animals, for a lack of better term, you're humanizing them, and you're giving them a soul, and you're giving them feel by giving them a voice. That's not to say that Scar and Shere Khan are not awful villains. They are. For that story, it works. Here, the fact that they remain silent, I think, presents them as more of an aggressive, imminent threat than something that has feelings. Like, to me, they are just animalistic. They kill because it's what they do. They attack because it's what they are supposed to do. So I think in this case, it works that they sort of left it like that. Right, especially because that sort of parallels that the gorillas see the humans as a threat because until Tarzan sort of translates between Jane and her father once they come to the camp, it's just another voiceless villain in their mind. Conceptually, I feel like that would have been a more interesting film if it was only Tarzan, like if he was silent the whole time and only started speaking when Jane her and her father came into the picture. And I think they would have had to figure out a lot more creative ways to have him communicate with the gorillas. But at the same time, on the other hand, then you'd lose those really deep conversations between Kala and Kerchak. And that's not something that I would have wanted to sacrifice for creating a stronger enemy. So does it bother you that the elephants can talk? No, because no. I think <laughs> I think you needed a little bit of comic relief too. No, and I, mean, I Tantor's the best character in the whole movie. So. I was gonna say he's my absolute favorite. Everything he says is golden. The bacteria in the water. Yeah, I, I love that he's such a hypochondriac. And Turk. I mean, who doesn't love Turk? Yeah. I think introducing Turk early in the film and kind of becoming that sibling slash buddy to Tarzan, always looking out for him. I think that these two characters being introduced, um, they make it really lighthearted. And it's it, it sort of, at the same time, it gives it another level of depth because Tarzan is going to leave Kala, which is going to be very difficult. But if he was just leaving Kala, but he was also getting away from Kerchak when he's going to go with Jane... Like, not really a problem, not a lot of conflict there. I think that because you had to have two other characters, really, that were raised alongside him and were his childhood friends, I think that that was important in for the sake of creating more conflict. And Rosie O'Donnell and Wayne Knight were both really, really good in the movie. Anyway, so you got two great characters, but I definitely feel like they fit in this film. You needed to give Tarzan some other kind of ally against Kerchak as a child. And you also needed someone to trash the camp. You did. And I'm going to just, <laughs> I want to rewind for a second. Because I do have a question that I want to ask you guys about Clayton. Is Clayton too manic from Go? Because 
you don't find out right away what his obsession is with the gorillas. He just goes, gorillas, and starts firing his weapon. And where are they? And fires his weapon again. It's not until much later in the film that he goes, well, they're 300 ahead. But, of course, he's not going to expose his scheme bright and early in the movie, but you would think that perhaps you would see him having a sidebar conversation, or perhaps this would have been really interesting. Tarzan overhears a sidebar conversation between Clayton and the members of the crew, but because he's only just starting to learn English, he can't explain it. You know what I'm saying? Like, then it would have made sense. In this case, I kind of thought to myself he was a little manic for manic's sake. I think part of that is that they're trying to make him funny, just shooting at anything that moves. But you definitely don't trust him from the jump. And not just because he's carrying a gun. I mean, he I mean, he looks like a Disney villain, first of all. But you can you can tell there's something shisty going on there. I felt like he needed to be that way because you we knew as the audience from the very beginning, there's no reasoning with this person. He's he's beyond the point where you can talk him out of doing something evil. And I think that was the biggest threat to you know, and that almost plays into Kerchak's hand of like no, no line of communication, no contact, no anything. And that's how you kind of see that point because Clayton is a maniac. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I kind of like that he was manic from the beginning because again, like it is very classic Disney villain. Like you see this guy and automatically you think he is not just a bodyguard. Like there is something up with this guy. There's a hidden agenda there's something like because he is very straightforward about him also being obsessed with the gorillas. And I feel like it's very obvious from the beginning that he's not there to study them. So you can kind of put the pieces together even without him flat out saying it like he does at the end. I think it's not subtle. I do love how they introduce Jane to Tarzan, though. I think that. This entire rescue, I, I know we're going to talk about the animation here in just a little bit. The The whole rescue scene to me kind of just seems like Disney animators going, hey, look at what we can do with these computers. That's how it looks. But that aside, I love how they meet. I love that he just repeats every single thing that she does and how intrigued she is and how she doesn't just immediately write him off as this freak that she found in the jungle. I mean, she is now more interested in him than she is in the gorillas. And I thought that it was a really good way of introducing us to this character that obviously, you know, she's the leading lady. The audience needs to fall in love with her. They make it very easy to do when they made her so gentle with him from such an early point in the film. And this might be... Hard for some people to believe because now we have princesses like Anna. But up until this point, we hadn't seen like a goofball leading lady the way that Jane is. And I mean, she's Victorian era. She's obviously, you know, she's working with her father, which is a pretty progressive thing that she's even on this expedition. And she's not, she's not necessarily goofy in the sense of what she's saying like she's not a jokester but it's just the way that they animated her with the physicality and just just her facial expressions which I think they took a lot from Minnie Driver 
um, we had just never seen a, a female Disney character like this before. Um, and as far as their meet cute, we have sung the praises of Aladdin and Jasmine. I think that's probably like our favorite one to date when they're in the marketplace and he's like, all right, just go along with it. And Jasmine plays it cool. And she just takes Aladdin's cue and she follows him. Um, this is probably my second favorite. I, I love everything about it. I love him mimicking her and I love as, as cheesy and predictable as it is. I, I love the hand and it's such a big character moment for him too, because he doesn't just see obviously a pretty girl that he's going to eventually be attracted to, but he starts to question something that he never even knew existed. And it, it completely unravels him at this point. I feel like I have to go back to what you're talking about with Jane, because it was something that I never really noticed until today when we watched it. But I do think they intentionally make her very goofy I like how she was extremely disheveled after the baboons chased her. You know, like her hair didn't stay perfect. Like it was wild and in her face. And then I think one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie was when she was recounting it back to her dad. And he's even like, oh, yeah, she gets like this. You know, she's kind of crazy and she's very animated. And I think we continue to see that obviously in a more like respectable way, but she is very into everything that she does and she's animated and she's excited about it. But I, I like how you brought it back to Anna. Like she is very just silly. But I also like their first interaction where she's gentle with Tarzan, but she's not too gentle because if you go too gentle, then it's completely not believable at all. Most people would be screaming, scratching, clawing, get away from me, you're a crazy person. I mean, she did kick him. I know, and so I'm saying they added in just enough where it made it believable and it made it a real human interaction between the two of them, where, like you said, they planted those seeds where Tarzan is now questioning, what, what is this? Like, why, why am I seeing so many similarities? But they're also, you know, like you said, Jane is becoming enthralled with him from just a study standpoint that will then grow into something later in the movie. There is such a great push and pull because she's fascinated with him as, you know, they eventually say he's like the missing link, but she wants to study him. And then, and then at the same time, she remembers who she really is, not just this person out in the jungle. And he's like climbing up her skirt and she's got to put him back in his plate in his place. So there's just such that great, it's just such a great energy throughout this scene because she wants to dive in headfirst with him, but then she she keeps herself in check as excited as she is. And I think that comes out just like Catherine was saying when she recants everything to her father. And they took my boot. I love that scene. That's such a great character moment for her. And I believe Minnie Driver actually improvised it because they didn't, they drew Tarzan first. And then they sort of retrofit Jane into all of these scenes. So Minnie Driver had read the script and they showed her the scene before. And then they just kind of like let her go with her character telling her father about it. That's Which, really good. I like that. <laughs> it's sort of risky, right? Yeah. That they would do that. It's very risky, but it worked. Yeah. And even her dad, he's like, I bought her that boot. It was just like this like little quick throwaway line, but it's very, very funny. And it sort of catches you by surprise when he says it. I didn't catch it the first time we saw it. 
I also like that he really embraces being out there with his daughter and her eccentricities as opposed to like, this is what you have for having a woman along. Yeah, right. Yeah, because they could have very easily turned that way. But instead, he is like all about her manic and hysterical explanation. And then she's showing how he's walking on the knuckles. He's like, oh, yeah, like this. He just jumps right in. But he's great, too. I think that the two of them work together. And it's they juxtapose well against Clayton. So for as manic as Clayton is, in that case, it absolutely works very well when you put the three of them together. I love when she draws Tarzan on the chalkboard for her father. And it's it's so silly because we're watching the Disney animators and it's like such a meta thing to see exactly how they're sketching him out in this scene. But I, I just... I love the drawing and I love what it's doing for her character too, because she realizes that there's like something there. I was going to say, I love that her dad points it out and he's like, you need a moment alone with this. Yes. <laughs> like Everyone notices. And I feel like she's the last one to know like what's going on. Let's talk about not the song per se, but let's talk about the scene where the camp gets trashed, right? It is one of the most iconic scenes in the movie I love that you get Mrs. Potts, and I love that you get the line, oh, come on, these things aren't alive, when they all freak out and see the grandfather clock and the plates and all of it for the first time. It's brilliant. But the best part is Tantor trying to bury himself in this thing. (laughs) (laughs) But I do, I mean, it's such a brilliant scene because you can view it, it, it so well illustrates how just the difference in perspective where it was such an innocent and fun thing that the gorillas were doing. But when the humans come back and see it, they think, oh, this was just destroyed. Just they they took our belongings with no respect for them and trashed it. It was like, no, they were just having fun. They don't they don't see value in place. So they just smash them. The biggest thing going through my head when I first saw this was who let them pack all of that stuff? Like, why did they come to Africa in the middle of a jungle with a grandfather clock. I'm sorry, but who let you pack that? And like, how did Mrs. Potts survive that voyage? (laughs) I don't know. It's interesting though that that's their reaction of you broke all of our expensive stuff that we shouldn't have brought to a jungle when this is exactly what you're here to study. I kind of, I don't know. I thought they were more upset. Like I think Jane's more upset that she missed out on actually seeing them do it and seeing them in their natural habitat and seeing what happened when they messed with it. Well, I think that's the brilliance of this scene is as a kid, all you care about is you're watching the gorillas break everything. So it's funny. And then they turn a, they turn the whole thing into a song and then you think it's, it's silly and it's fun. And as a kid it is, but you kind of look at it through a totally different set of eyes as an adult but the scene still works, right? It's not like I sit there and go, okay, I thought that was funny as a kid, and that's kind of why I like it now. Like, there are just movies that I have seen recently. One, for example, and I think I've mentioned it on the show a couple of times. It's not the two that you think I'm going to mention. Okay, so just calm down. Rock-a-doodle. As, like, a four-year-old kid, I thought that was the coolest movie of all time. I caught it again on television like two years ago, and I said, <laughs> like, I don't know what it is that I saw in this movie. 
other than a rock and roll rooster. Maybe that was cool, and that's what I thought was fun, but I don't understand sitting here watching this now how I ever enjoyed this movie. You get that sometimes, and I feel like it's possible, if not done the right way, that's what this scene becomes, but they totally knock it out of the park. So imagine hearing that from someone who's never even heard of Rockadoodle, me hand up in the air right now. <laughs> like, I don't know what you're talking about. I was expecting All I heard some is sort a of rock and roll rooster, so I am intrigued. <laughs> it's I believe Glenn Campbell, I believe, plays the lead, and it was a Don Bluth movie. So movies like this are why Disney animation fell into trouble in the 80s, was so that eventually we'd get a movie like Rock-A-Doodle. Was that, um, <laughs> that was after Care Bears, right? It was after Care Bears. It was after All Dogs Go to Heaven, which is probably Don Bluth's. Well, we don't that, talk about this movie. That and Fievel Goes West or The American Tale, those are his best. And then, I thought Fievel was Spielberg, or he just produced it. I thought it. he made it with Don Bluth. I could be wrong about that, but I thought Bluth was included. The point is, it all went downhill after starting with Rockadoodle. You're not missing out on anything. No, because then he did Thumbelina and The Swan Princess. Those were, I mean, if it, if it wasn't a Disney movie, those were like near perfect. Do you think I was the demographic, the target demographic for the Swan Princess and Thumbelina. Troll in Central Park. Never seen it. <gasps> oh, my God. Well, he's never seen Rockadoodle. They that... didn't even hear about it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We're going to put this train back on the tracks right now. Are we? Uh, well, Should I think we we're... we push it back up? Yeah. <laughs> it, I mean, we're consistent, if nothing else. Monorail Radio, the wildest ride in the wilderness. So now Tarzan and Jane are spending more and more time together and he is he's learning how to become a human right and it's such an intriguing scene because i think maybe now for me Brendan is where i start to draw a lot of comparisons to the jungle book um as Mowgli as he's getting older is starting to kind of learn that you know He's trying to be a bear, but he's not a bear, right? And he's, he wants to be a panther, but he's not really a panther. And, and he sort of is starting to come to terms with that on his own. This is so interesting because Tarzan is doing this for two reasons. The first, because he's intrigued because it's really the first time he's learned anything. But you also know he's doing all of this for Jane. I don't know, though. I think it's more about spending time with Jane, not... Until he sees that slide with the flowers, I don't think it's about doing this for her. I think that's when he realizes he actually has to participate in these things that he's seeing if he really wants to be with her. But I think in the beginning, it's just as innocent as if I sit here and watch these pictures, I get to be with her. But I think it also start like he's he's genuinely interested because like we had said earlier, Jane opens up the door to a world he never even knew existed. So I think it's just sheer curiosity that's got him there too well and i think i didn't quite realize like the impact or the intensity of his curiosity until even just like a little past the learning scene where he brings it back up with collar like well why didn't you mention that there were people that looked like me so it was interesting for me to kind of see like the depth of his emotions when it came to learning about just like other humans and human things to where not only was he intrigued, but it almost opened up 
like that childhood hurt again where he was upset and it kind of brought him back to that place. Well, yeah, and I think kind of with that, the underlying tone that I got out of the scenes as well is that at the same time that they are teaching him, they're also studying him at the exact same time. That's, I think, the reason why they're keeping him around and continuing with the lessons because they just want to be near him. Now, all three of them maybe for different reasons. Jane, because she just likes his company. Archimedes, because he's uh, curious for a study standpoint. And then Clayton, we know his reasons. But I feel like they kind of drop through body language and well, not through those scenes, they kind of drop that they don't really care about teaching him about the pyramids of Egypt. They just want him around and they can see that he's interested. And he has that moment with take my hand, right? Where you're starting to see that I mean, yes, like you said, the scene with the flowers and everything else, but he is now starting to really come into his own as a human being because he's intrigued by Jane because it's the first time he has seen another human being face to face. But obviously he now knows that there's something else there more than just your intrigue. And it's 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 so wonderful and it's so beautiful in a way because it's almost childish in quality, right? Like, you know that he doesn't really understand what romance is because he just doesn't know but it's like when he has the conversation with Clayton he's like Jane stay with Tarzan like and that's it it's just so blunt and so cut and dry it is like talking to a young child and I think that it does the film so well because not that he's not an endearing character up to that point he very much is but to give him that sort of childlike wonder I thought made him so much deeper than he was at the beginning of the movie. I agree. I think it's so funny, too, that there's so many layers to this scene and so much else happening for character and story here that those slides become secondary. But it the sequence is just so beautifully done, too. Like, the time and the effort that they put into that drawing, I think, is just incredible. And I love all of the subtle cues that they're pumping through here as well. Like, Tarzan is starting to walk upright. Like, yes, he's mimicking Clayton, but he still does it. And now even the more activities that he does with Jane, where he takes her to see the birds so she can sketch them or swing on the tree, her Victorian dress has gone to a longer skirt and a tank top. And then by the end of it, she's just full-blown, like, hair down. She, she looks like she's, you know, made to be in the jungle now. I want to circle back around to the scene where Kala does take Tarzan to his parents' house. You mean to his parents' bodies? Yeah, to the cadavers. Um, <laughs> As we didn't mention it before. I mean, the angle at which they draw the dad's leg, it's, it's like out of the socket. Yeah, they didn't yeah. do him any favors. Yeah, no, no it, yeah. They, they didn't. No. They went for it. Disney went for it. <laughs> That's for sure. Bloody paw prints would have been more than enough. Well, Apparently not, but they sort of go for it here, too. But wait, I'm sorry. I'm only realizing this now. Okay, so he left the bodies. If you're not going to eat them, like, why did you kill them then? They didn't I have thought, guns. I did think the same thing. Yeah. Intruders. It's a, if it's only a territorial he spoke animal. some dialogue and we could understand. <laughs> 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 we don't even know if he's a he. Could be... Sapor could be a she. We don't even know. I'm well just chalking it up. Brendan. Your point has been made. 
I have, I have jumped off my counterpoint, and I am now Team Brendan on this. But it's a, it is such a powerful scene because we as the audience know the truth. This character that you are falling in love with, I mean, truly, you do fall, fall in love with Tarzan as, as the audience. You are now watching all of this be exposed to him, and at the same time, your heart breaks for Kala because you know not i mean it it hurts her to have this conversation with her but you having seen oh i don't know a couple of movies in your life know that what she's doing is she's letting him go and this is such a big pivotal moment for her you know it was always kind of the moment that she feared and now it's being realized in front of your eyes it really is a great scene And, you know, it's Disney at their finest, too, because they make it relatable. It's not just the fact that she's a gorilla. It's, you know, one of the things that any parent has to come to term with is when their child grows up. And it's, you know, the classic, if you love something, let it go. This is just a million times harder for her because she did lose a child. And she had to fight so hard to even have Tarzan in her life and protect him. Uh, So you really feel the gravity of that loss. Well, and I feel like too, this wasn't even like on her timetable. Like she probably thought that she had more time with him to drag this out or, you know, she probably expected to have to show him this someday, but like, Oh, I'm going to show you, but you're still going to stay here because where else are you going to go? You know? So I feel like, even though she probably expected this to happen eventually, I don't think she ever thought that it was going to be like this, almost like she was forced into it. Well, and I think the reason why this scene is so impactful and why I enjoyed it so much is because a lot of times when you see something like this in a movie, the reaction would be, okay, Tarzan's going to run through the jungle and he's going to run a mile away to be by himself to soak this all in, and then when he comes to terms with it, he will come back. But no, Kala waits outside, lets Tarzan come to grips with the situation and the information that he just learned, and then he comes to her, and they share the moment of the hearts, and they say, you know, we'll always be together. Are you going to cry? Maybe. I did <laughs> cry watching it, so it's fine. But I just think that was done so well, because... And so, like I said, in so many movies, it would be, let's split apart and then we'll come back together. But she gave him the room that he needed and then he came to her and it just further strengthened that bond. And I think they're playing You'll Be In My Heart melody underneath it like they always do, which I meant to mention (laughs) this. The very first time she picks him up, they're playing it. You haven't even heard the song if you're watching for the movie for the first time and they're playing it underneath. So just laying that groundwork was... That bond between Kala and Tarzan is... It's sweet. I mean, it's about as strong as you get in an animated movie, I feel like. That's a really great point, because you're right. For for all the Disney movies that we watch, and just movies in general, we should see him disappear and then come back when Clayton has them trapped and save the day. And they just did the complete opposite of your expectations. And they they do one-up it because I know we joked about it before, but he does come out in the suit. So you've got Kala waiting for him to rip this Band-Aid, and she's in emotional turmoil right now. 
and he makes such a clear cut definitive stance not even you know to come out and talk to her about his decision it's just yeah I mean it's film it's a visual medium he should but it it's just such a definitive thing to do even though I don't buy for a second that all those muscles are gonna fit in his father's suit yeah they were not the same build <laughs> not even well, like, how did you know how to tie a tie really I, I doubt Jane had that in her slide it was cinemagic it Maybe it was already tied and he just like loosened it, put it over his head and then tightened it back up. It's a clip you mean on. mean if he took it off the neck of his father's Could be, skeleton. but I've done that before. A lot of my ties are still, I just undo them enough to slip it over my head, put it on the rack. Good to go next easy, time you want to wear it. Oh, that's much lighter than... <laughs> than so yeah, I, I was going to say, that. so let's just be clear. I say he's wearing a clip-on. Brendan does what literally every guy does when he doesn't want to have to tie a tie consecutive days in a row. And you keep going to the same place. And it says an awful lot about you right now. I, I mean, I, and you, the white of your eyes is defined. So I'm sort of, for my own safety, do we need a safe word? No. Banana. Like, Banana like is the safe word. Okay. Banana is the safe word. No, I don't think that he took the I don't even think his father was wearing a suit. I think he was in like some kind of like jeans and a button down because they were building the house. So I think I that that's she's what now he, trying to like justify this. No, I'm not trying to justify it. I'm trying to remember, honestly, because I mean, when you see his leg all twisted up, he's definitely he got dark blue pants on. So it could be the suit. Well, so I guess the real question is when Sabor went back for the burial and the funeral service, did the <laughs> leopard dress the dad in a suit to be respectful for the deceased? I mean, if Sabor didn't eat him, you'd want to <laughs> think that that uh, came back and did the right thing. Well, you know who didn't do the right thing? Clayton, when he double crosses them, when they get back on the boat and... What I like about this is they don't waste a lot of time before they get them back on land. And this scene is so powerful for two reasons. And it has everything to do with the animation. It has nothing to do with anything that's being said. The fear that they put in Kala's eyes specifically is palpable. But I love that everything turns red. The way they edited it, the way that they animated it, everything goes red in this scene. And I think that it was an absolutely brilliant, brilliant way to really bump up the drama more so than it already has been. No, and to Brendan's earlier point, this is where it's even more powerful that Tarzan didn't storm off in a huff because he's captured too. He's trying to get them off the boat and then... It gives a lot of validation to Turk and Tantar because they're the ones who have to go and save him. Now, do I buy an elephant being able to climb up onto that boat? No, not really. But the point is their characters serve more of a purpose than the childhood friends and sidekicks helping him to fit in earlier. But it's like we talked about before that this isn't just hard on Tarzan leaving Kala. It's hard for everybody who was a part of his life. Well, two things that stood out to me in this sequence. Uh, first was our favorite line in the ent entire movie. I was waiting for this. <laughs> it's when uh, Tentor grabs Turk and said, no, we're going, stop being emotionally constipated, <laughs> which is definitely going to be a line that I use in everyday life. <laughs> <laughs> and it was great. 
Secondly, to Sean, your point about, you know, the flares go up, it goes red. I realized about halfway through that it was raining. And I didn't even realize when did they turn the water on because they just, they did it very smoothly and set that tone. Okay, this is the, this is the final fight scene. And what's yeah. interesting about the final fight scene is that it ends up being Clayton who is his own foil. They could have just as easily had Tarzan throw him off of something, or Tarzan could have cut the vines, but instead it's, it's Clayton that does it, and Tarzan is trying to stop him from doing it, and he does it anyway, and just to stay on brand with the movie... His fatality is totally brutal, and Disney goes for it, right? You, you, see, the, you see the leg. They had a thing with legs in this movie, but you see it again. Um, you but see I, the shadow. Yeah, very Haunted Mansion-ish, right? But I give them a lot of credit for going for it, and I sort of, in this case, like the fact that it wasn't Tarzan that did it, right? It's different in The Lion King when it's, the hyenas that get to Scar, but it was Simba that threw him off of Pride Rock, right? Like, I do like to see the villain get their comeuppance via the protagonist, but in this case, the fact that he's just learning how to be human, right? You see what I'm saying? And so it it continues to humanize him because up to this point, he's still not a fully developed character, Tarzan. That's exactly what I was going to say is that I don't think it ever could have been Tarzan because he doesn't know enough. I mean, he's very, in some ways, he's still very much childlike and he's still learning the ways of the world. I don't think that he's still learning how to be human himself. So I don't think he could even conceptualize taking the life of another human. I think he understands the need to protect himself because we've seen him do it with the leopard. Um but I don't think that it was ever his intent to harm Clayton. And that especially comes through when he says Clayton, no. The voice acting there, it's just so powerful because you can just feel how much he means it. But Clayton totally got what was coming to him. No doubt about that. Well, and I feel like even his death, we talked about how manic Clayton was at the beginning. I feel like that was up you know, times 10 during his death because he's so set on getting Tarzan, getting the gorillas, getting everything that he thinks that he deserves. And ultimately, I mean, that's what kills him. Because like you said, he kills himself. Yeah, it, I I agree. I think it that's what makes it more... There was never a moment, like in the movie, where it's like, Tarzan, like, reach out your hand and grab him. It's almost like, good, Clayton, be gone. Like, we don't like you. You you have nothing redeeming about you. So that's why I kind of like how evil he is. Unpopular opinion. Talk about somebody that we don't like. This whole scene where we lose Kerchak because Clayton has shot him. Two things which are not going to make me any friends. First... I never really feel bad for Kerchak because I haven't felt anything for him this entire film. Um, I, I understand why he's so hesitant to accept Tarzan, but it's like in this moment you accept him. I understand why, but for all of the other good things that he did throughout the film, 
this is that moment where you choose to. And the thing is, it's it's really drawn out. Like, Jim Carrey in The Mask, when he has his fake death scene in The Mask, and it just goes on and on and on, and his cough gets more and more muffled, and it's just hysterical, and you laugh at it. I kind of get that here. It just is so cheesy and goes on for far too long. I have done nothing to endear myself to anybody in the last 90 seconds, and I can live with it. I'm actually going to agree with you. I didn't notice that it dragged, but as far as calling him my son, it's too little too late for that. So you don't, if anything, you don't really feel bad for Kerchak in the moment. You feel bad for Tarzan because he's tried to have this relationship his whole life and now he's going to miss out on it. So, I mean, I, I'm on the opposite side because, and I think it goes back to kind of that leopard scene of him, Tarzan presenting the leopard. We had a disagreement on what was happening there. My, feeling in that moment is that Kerchak knew all along how powerful and how you know important and you know how much the family needed Tarzan and he through his own suppression of emotions or whatever it might be could not find a way to explain that to Tarzan or he never had the right moment so to me it more amplifies that he was about to hug him whatever he the leopard in front of him and he was you know forgiving up to a certain extent even though like you said before tarzan did all of this like if tarzan would have just said nope you're not meeting him end of story i'm what you get then none of this happens but i don't know i it didn't feel drawn out to me i was i was invested yeah i i kind of felt the same way i almost felt like that scene was just a way for kind of Kerchak's true emotions to come out, if that makes sense, because he does have like the sympathy towards Kala. And I think he did sort of recognize throughout the movie, especially with the leopard that Tarzan was not necessarily a son figure, but he wasn't maybe the nuisance that he originally thought that he was. Yeah. I don't know. Let me ask you guys another question. We get to the end of the film and Jane is told by her father, go with him, stay, I'll be okay. Until he jumps in the water to go with Jane to stay with Tarzan, does anybody else get like major Little Mermaid vibes off of that scene? Oh, totally. But I never made the connection until just now, but absolutely. I guess because it's not as sad. I mean, like, for me, Little Mermaid was my favorite, so it's always at the forefront of my mind. But since Jane doesn't do the, you know, I love you, Daddy, and go for the jugular, it's not as sad. So since it's so much more lighthearted, and then he's like, what am I doing? I'll just go with her. Um, it just tonally, it's so different, but it does sort of remind me of that. Well, I think you just have to also keep in mind for this scene is it's sort of a throwaway line at the beginning, but it is implied that Jane's mother and the professor's wife is gone and no longer with them. So they really, you know, we don't know their full life in London, but it's not like they have a missus to go back to or a mom to go back to. It's almost like these two are each other's world. Now Tarzan comes, throws that off balance and uh, Archimedes can come in and 
I don't know what he's going to do. Just hang out, I guess. I mean, they have a treehouse that they can move into, so might as well. I know. We almost watched Tarzan 2, but we stopped ourselves because we are like, no, we'd probably bring up Tarzan 2 points in this one. <laughs> <laughs> it would get confusing. Uh, we have made that mistake once where we were like, we did watch one of the sequels after the original before we got a chance to record our conversation, and we were bringing up things from the sequel. So... We appreciate it, and now the sequel isn't spoiled because up until really the revisit for this, I I was just kind of like, okay, I had seen the movie twice. First time wasn't for me. Second time, I liked it a lot more, and I was kind of just good with it. It's It's done. It's over with. But I have to tell you that now that we've gone through this a couple of times, I would actually make the time to sit and watch the second movie. I'm curious. I want to see where they where they would go with this. Well, it's called Tarzan and Jane. So spoiler alert. What? I think it's in a they end up together. No. And it's going to follow them. No. I, I want to see Tarzan and Jane, the sequel. We have to clear the the bodies out of the treehouse if we want to move in this again oh my lord i just wondered what would happen you know obviously they kind of have it i mean not kind of they have a thing for each other what would have happened if she decided this wasn't for her you're kind of stuck did she ever think that through before jumping off that shower for the rest of my life maybe this doesn't sound as nice anymore yeah like i just want to know what was going through your head when you decided to stay in the jungle forever. As silly as it sounds, that's why it almost has to take place in the Victorian era. Because if it was modern day and you have all these modern day amenities, like you're never brushing your teeth again. You're never showering. You go back to the Victorian area, you're probably already pretty gross. Right. This isn't too far <laughs> off from that. But if you said it today, nope. Hard pass. No, this would j- basically just be an episode of Survivor except forever. <laughs> yeah. No, but they do sort of cover that though because uh when when they're going to leave the first time uh Tarzan says I'll go see England with you and then I'll come back. And then they allude to the fact that they don't get to come back that often that you know this is not an easy journey to make. So I think that they had to have realized that this was very much a permanent decision. Even if they decided, eh, you know what, this isn't really for me, they're going to have to stick it out for a while. The one thing that I thought was missing at the end of this movie, so obviously Clayton is gone, but all of those bad people that worked with him, I almost wish that there was a moment like there was in Pocahontas where you saw like they were throwing them back on the boats and they were tied up or something because did they just walk away? Did the gorillas get them? What happened to those people? They should not just get off fine. Right, because they did take an equal part in capturing the gorillas and the captain. Like they had the ship's crew with Jane and her father under, you know, in the yeah, in the, the rig. Whole, yeah, uh, this mutiny that they staged. Yeah. yeah. I wish there was justice for those people. Maybe that happens in Jane and Tarzan and they, I don't know what they do with them. I would, I would doubt it, but you never know. All right, I want to start talking about the animation a little bit because I feel like more so than almost any other film, this animation is so tied to the story. Now, granted, 
like visually this looks different than than anything else that we've seen because i mean obviously okay he's skating down the trees and whatnot but i feel like this is where blending the animation with the computers really starts to stick out because disney had been planting that in little by little as early as the little mermaid there's that scene where ariel runs down the steps that was all computer animation aladdin the magic carpet they didn't paint that every time that's computer so slowly but surely even before toy story it was being planted but here i feel like even to somebody who doesn't necessarily study disney the way that we do it's easy to tell what's hand-drawn and what's coming from a computer and i think that has to do a little bit with technology advancing because we're watching this on disney plus and on a high def tv it's going to stand out much more than it did even on a big screen in a movie theater. Yeah, I mean, I remember watching it for the first time. And and actually, I will say the only opinion I've had that hasn't changed from 1999 to now is how stuck in between the movie kind of seems. Because some of the animation looks amazing. Spoiler, if it was hand-drawn, it looks amazing. The rest of it looks like holy computer video game. See, I mean, I think there's there's a stark contrast between the two, but I think they actually did manage to meld it together. Like, it looks beautiful to me. I think the jungle looks absolutely stunning. I think even from the opening shot where you get the camera pushing through the palm trees and you can see the leaves and there's such detail there. And... um you know, like in the elephant stampede where they're moving through, I think it's done pretty well. I just think that based on what we've gotten used to, it stands out more than it ever has. But, I mean, and this is not to knock the Disney animators, how could you have achieved this tree skating without the help of a computer? Because that that's amazing. Regardless of how they did it, it, it looks incredible. Well, and that was my point. And we don't study the animation nearly to the extent that you guys do. But I, just watching it today, I couldn't find any fault in it. I mean, I could tell that it background was computer and hand-drawn. But I think the skating is really impressive for it to move that fast and to follow and, and to go along. And I, and I do think that contributes to the story a little bit as well, just because Tarzan is told so many times like we said, George of the Jungle, just two years before, it's an adaptation of this same story. People were familiar with this character before Disney took it over, and they're used to him swinging through trees, which our Tarzan in this movie does do to a certain extent, but he does do that sliding and skating more, which I think makes it more... I mean, that's a that's a unique thing to this version of the Tarzan story. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I just think overall... I really enjoyed the computer backgrounds because I do think it gives it a certain depth that I don't necessarily know if we would have gotten if it were just hand drawn. Like even when like they walk into the treehouse and you get to see all the detail when they walk through the camp and there's, you know, a lot of depth to that. I just think it makes it more interesting. Which to be fair, if I remember correctly, the last animated movie we watched before this was Snow White. So we skipped a lot of years <laughs> <laughs> between the two. 
So maybe we need to find a we need to go in Aladdin or something to get a an Better. in between. Yeah. I mean, when you consider something like the Jungle Book that had the multiplane camera and they did a phenomenal job and they still created that jungle, but like there is just something different i guess i guess what i'm really drawn to is the night scenes in particular because of the way that they did the colors and they give that glow of the moon i mean they just really made it look so beautiful and yeah i i hate to say it but i don't know that you would have achieved that same thing with a hand-drawn it's i mean we we've said it about frozen is is elsa's magic and is the snow going to glow quite the same way without a computer no not really it doesn't matter that you have the best animators in the world working on it there's just a different quality and to circle back to brendan's point with it being tied to the story with the tree skating i mean it's such a big part of tarzan's character but it also does serve a purpose and especially too when it comes even when it comes to him uh, fighting the leopard, that's an advantage that he's got. Or even towards the end with Clayton, um, you know, Clayton's not skating down the trees in the same way, but it's just that Tarzan has the upper hand because this is a skill that he's developed. See, and I think the most beautifully drawn thing in this movie are actually the animals. I think that, and again, I'm a sucker for hand-drawn, I always have been and I always will be. To be honest with you, I wish with a few exceptions that Disney would stop with the computer animation and go back to traditional hand-drawn, but that's another conversation for another day. But I think these animals are so incredible in their detail. And, and to even go back and to touch on something like Snow White, I mean, you, I remember when we reviewed Snow White on the show saying, my God, these animals look so good for the 1930s, the first full-length animated feature. And I think they still look so good. But when you look at them and then you go to a Jungle Book and then maybe you go to a Fox and the Hound and an Oliver and Company and then you get here to see the lineage and how much detail is now in these drawings, it truly is incredible that Disney has been able to, you know... To continue doing this, I remember looking at The Lion King and thinking, my God, nothing will ever look as good as this. But I'll be honest with you, just in regards to the characters themselves, this is on par, if not better than any other animals we've seen. Oh, to clarify, when I'm saying the computer is going to look better, I mean for the background. Yeah, as far as the gorillas go, you can't hold a candle to, to the drawing. And of course, we know that Disney brings them in and they study them, but especially for something like a gorilla, like anytime we've ever gone to Animal Kingdom, it's my favorite part of the day. And I sit there and I'm like, I could sit there and watch these gorillas all day long. And we do. Usually we'll end up, you know, there for an hour and you're like, all right, I have a fast pass for Everest. I got to go. Um, so the way that they they captured that, it, it's hard to even describe really they're they're so slow but they're so elegant at the same time even though they're enormous especially Kerchek they the the drawing there is just incredible and even with Tarzan himself to get this hybrid of a person and a gorilla I think that they blended the two together perfectly and it's interesting that he's so angular and so muscular and then you've got Jane who's so 
like she looks so much softer and so much more she's like a noodle in her movement that's how I always think of her but it it's just amazing how they managed to bring it all together and, and make it work because it is so different and the animation process too they were doing some of this in Paris at the studio over there so Glenn Keane's doing a sketch in over in Burbank and then they'd have to ship it out and then animate it and he wasn't even there for it I will say the movement is something that really stood out to me, especially with like Sabor, you know, the way that he kind of stalks and moves. That to me was extremely realistic. I feel like if anything, the one that kind of let me down, and I hate to say it because he already said he's our favorite, was the elephants. I feel like that was still a little too like cartoony. Yeah, I mean, I feel like with those and in that coming-of-age scene with the crocodiles, you can tell they didn't spend a ton of time. They kind of did a copy-and-paste almost. Like, they're all the same, same color. Make five of them. Bring them around. So, I mean, I, I would agree. Do you think Tantor specifically or just all of the elephants? I don't know. Like, I guess it's maybe it's just his personality. Like, he's kind of goofy and funny and clumsy. So I guess maybe that's more the direction they were going than realistic. So that's fine. But I just feel like when you compare it to, like, a Sabor, I feel like the movement just isn't the same. It's not up to par. No, I Was... agree with you, Catherine, because when you think of something like the Jungle Book, they were drawn so much more realistic, but they had that cartoon face. I feel like this, it's a full-blown cartoon body, and you do lose... Like, when you compare it to the gorillas, they're not as realistic as everything else that they've done in the movie. But kind of speaking of that copy and paste, I feel like with all the gorillas, at least all, I didn't see any duplicates in the family. They It really looked like all of them were unique, which I think is good, because, like, Lion King, outside of the main family members that you follow, a lot of them look the exact same. Right. Yeah. Like a zebra's a zebra's a zebra. Yeah. <laughs> For this, I believe they had 32 gorillas and the animators named them. So you have Kerchak and Kala, obviously, but they named them um, the ones in the same family, mother and child, starting with the first letter or the, the first letter of each name was the same. Um, and that's how they would be able to tell them apart from scene to scene. All right. I think now's a good time because we are starting to really dissect some of these characters now, especially in the animation that we take the time to actually discuss, uh, discuss the cast and characters, starting with our title character Tarzan played by, Tony Goldwyn, who I only know from Ghost. I don't, I other than this and Ghost, and, and he played the villain in, in that film, um, those are the only two films I personally know him from, but I thought that he did a really good job with Tarzan. Even though he's not the one that does the Tarzan call, he didn't act that out himself. Other than that, I thought he gave so much life to this character, and I thought that um, he made him so endearing. Everything that's so great about him, I think, actually does come from Tony Goldwyn. I agree. So much life, so much innocence when he needs to have childlike qualities. Um, I had said it before when he says, no, Clayton, there's so much feeling behind that. 
And even we didn't really get to talk about this yet where Tarzan is mimicking the gorilla sounds like when he translates between Jane and Kala the first time they meet. Uh, I think he nailed that, too. And I'll give a shout out to young Tarzan. Congratulations, Disney, on finding Jonathan Taylor Thomas 2.0. Because you know some producer sitting there going, oh, my God, JTT's voice dropped. What are we going to do? Yeah, we had, uh, at least I, had no prior knowledge of Tony Goldwyn. I uh, will, after we end recording, I will probably never remember his name again. But (laughs) it was a nice performance. Yeah, I do think he had quite a range as far as being able to sound childlike when it was needed versus more adults. You know, like it was kind of a a flip switch that I feel like played into obviously his character traits. But that's about all I know about him, too. Minnie Driver plays Jane. She was huge when this movie came out because she had just done Goodwill Hunting. Similar to Tarzan, I mean, wonderfully animated, but everything that's great about this character is great because of the actress. My favorite mini driver other than this was Will and Grace. For the few episodes that she did, she was just such a scene stealer, and I absolutely love her, and I think that she was so perfect for this character. Uh, I think, you know, the animation lent to Jane being a little goofy, but I think even more of that comes from Minnie Driver, and I love that there was a lot of improvisation on her, her part to bring Jane to life. Yeah, I think she played the character very well. Like you said, she was goofy when it needed to be, but also you know sophisticated, but but human in those moments where they could have defaulted to something different. Yeah, this is I have to admit this is like my weak part. I don't know. The only person I knew going into this was Rosie O'Donnell. That's my extent of actor knowledge. <laughs> well, so this will you may have something to go off of here because until we watched the end credits, I had no idea that Kala was Glenn Close. Are you serious? I had no idea. You really didn't see promos for this movie nope. at all. Nope, I didn't. And I had no idea it was her. She is spectacular. Well, I mean, obviously Disney loves her because she was Cruella, but this is where, yeah, we were talking about maybe not having anyone but Tarzan and Jane speak. You need to, because Glenn Close gave so much to to Kala and to this performance. It wouldn't have been the same without it. I'll watch anything with Glenn Close in it. Brendan really does love her. I mean, it, it just goes back to 101 Dalmatians. And Catherine's favorite movie of all time is 102 Dalmatians. I bet nobody knew that. Not all time. I do love it, though. <laughs> I watched that as a child way too many times to count. It was a solid sequel. Do you know Glenn Coase was in Hook? Uh, yeah. Who did she play? The pirate that goes into the boo box. Yes. Yeah, I saw that on a uh, TikTok recently, of all things. <laughs> Yeah, Jimmy Buffett was in that too. Oh my, here we go. Yeah, there. No, he was. There were a lot of people had cameos in that movie. But it's you never, you never expect it. Like you know, as a kid, when you're watching, there's like something that looks different. And then I didn't find out until years later that it was Glenn Close, and I was like, oh my god. But like, why wouldn't you take that opportunity to be a pirate in Spielberg's Hook? Come on. Brian Blessed plays Clayton, and. We can debate whether he's too manic, not manic enough, just right. 
what I found really interesting in my research was to find out that he is the one that does the Tarzan call because Tony Goldwyn didn't do it. He was the one that filled in for him. I have huh. no idea why. Clayton as a character reminds me of Governor Radcliffe. I feel like there's a lot of similarities in the way that they're drawn. Obviously, both manic. And I think the performance was good, but I mean, I'll be honest with you. I'm glad that he has the Tarzan call to his name because I feel like this is sort of any villain. As far as the voice performance goes, like the character is in a league all, all of his own, but as far as the voice performance reminds me of Gaston, Governor Radcliffe, it's kind of all lumped together there. Yeah, I got more Gaston vibes than anything. I feel like I will just say, looking at his picture, he looks nothing like what I thought he would look like from his voice. <laughs> it would be I the just... equivalent if I voiced Tarzan. <laughs> I did kind of like almost the arrogance in his voice that he had though. I mean, it is very Gaston, but I did think that was a nice touch. Nigel Hawthorne plays Archimedes. You know what? It, it's comic relief. You needed it. I mean, he's a fun character. I have nothing. I, I don't find him ob objectionable or anything. Could the movie have survived without him? Yeah. Is it worse off that he's in it? No, I think that it's just fine. I think he's just a, a good secondary character i'm gonna play connect the dots here so archimedes played by nigel i think nigel i think nigel thornberry heck yeah archimedes <laughs> and nigel thornberry same character yeah i, mean, I can't argue with that <laughs> oh it's I a shame it. tim curry didn't voice this though he would have been interesting that would have been amazing rosie o'donnell plays turk and at the time she was everywhere used to love watching her on TV when she had her show on ABC, 10 o'clock in the morning. It was always on Channel 7. It was something you did in the summertime when you were off from school. Um, it makes sense or that... Or on your sick day before the price is right. Before the price is right, of course, with Bob. But it would make sense that Disney would tap into her because when she was really at the height of that show around the time that this movie came out, kids loved her, adults loved her, you know she had a contract with Disney, and she was a big name. I mean, honestly, if you really think about it, she was kind of the only big name. I mean, yeah, Minnie Driver, but I feel like we were just starting to like see the rise of Minnie Driver. And I think at the time, well, Glenn Close as well, they were kind of the two draws for this, even though I had no idea that Glenn Close was in this. I think really it was, I, looking back on it, always knew that this was just the Disney film that Rosie O'Donnell did. But I she's great. She did a great job. She's fantastic. I don't think that kids today understand, like, how big of a name she actually was. Because it wasn't just the talk show. She was in Harriet the Spy for Nickelodeon. She was in... A League of Their Own. A League of Their Own. She was in Now and Then, uh, which... No, I think that was all around the same time. The same. But point is, she did a ton of movies. And I think that now she's really only remembered for the talk show. So I don't know that kids are going to make that connection. But like certain people that kids know, like Whoopi Goldberg and Will Smith, they're still very prominent now and they still do a lot for kids. She's she hasn't really done anything in a while and she sort of faded into the background which is a shame because she was always you know you loved Rosie she did 
nobody sold more koosh balls than Rosie O'Donnell. <laughs> yes. I'll just play devil's advocate. I mean, she does have a very distinct voice. Would you rather, because growing up, I'll be honest, I thought Turk was a boy. Same. Same. So would you, if you could replace that with a more feminine voice where it was more obvious, or does it, does it matter? I think for the purpose of having somebody that serves as comic relief. I mean, yeah, it makes, even though, so Rosie O'Donnell is from Comac. She went to Comac High School, which is like 15 minutes from where we're recording this show right now. But she puts on this, like, really thick, like, Staten Island accent, which I thought was sort of an interesting take. I think you kind of had to go that way because it, it's comic relief. Like, if you if you put... Like, if we put Mini Driver in as Turk, is it going to be funny? Probably not. But with Rosie O'Donnell, it's funny. I mean, could you have gone... You could have gone any sort of direction with it, but I, I think for what they were trying to do, it worked. If this were to come out now... Bradley Cooper. I think they would just recast it. and <laughs> To me, everything is just Bradley Cooper now. Especially if it's an animal. Yeah, sure, why not? Um, no, to Brendan's point, if, if we were to go more feminine now, I could, and I never thought I would say this, I could see Aquafina doing it, maybe. Uh, oh, God. But now, <laughs> <laughs> I really wouldn't change a thing because I think to have sort of an androgynous character is very timely. If this movie were to come out, like, next week. Why, oh, God, Aquafina? <laughs> Oh, well, I don't want to spoil Raya. And the, I I like Aquafina. I think she's going to be great in Shang-Chi. Have you seen Raya and the Last Dragon? Yes, we did. Uh, Sisu was one of my least favorite characters ever. That's like, a problem. Ever. That's a problem when the dragon is in the title of the film. See, I never oh. really liked her, but the more I've seen her in, the more I do like her. I, actually, I liked her as Sisu. I mean, we we both share a very unpopular opinion that we don't like Moana at all. And we apparently we are in the minority of people that don't like Moana. So your yes, take you <laughs> your take on Aquafina is not as spicy as ours is on Moana as a whole. Good to know. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess if we're gonna bring it back to Rosie O'Donnell, I do think that her voice was kind of perfect because you almost needed like the pushy alpha friend for Tarzan, like someone to stick up for him that no one else would. So I feel like because she has like a very recognizable and a very strong voice, it fit with the kind of friend that Tarzan needed. Like he needed an advocate, someone who no one else would want to mess with, who would definitely beat everyone else up for, you know what I mean? So if it was like a feminine friend, they would just be like the little outcast. Yeah, I see that. I would definitely agree. Way to land that plane, Catherine. This was a very divided issue. But you <laughs> you got to the core of the apple. How many how many references are we going to make to the carousel of progress in one sitting tonight? It's never as enough. As many as possible. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Wayne Knight plays Tantor, and you don't have to twist my arm. I just love Wayne Knight. I always have. 
I loved him in Seinfeld. I loved him in Jurassic Park. I loved him in Space Jam. Come on, get your Big Mac and your Wheaties and we're going to go to the ballpark. I love him in everything, and I thought he was great in this. Same. And and I, the character, I mean, what else can we say? Tantar is perfection. He's hilarious as a child, gets even better as an adult. Uh I connect with him more as an adult. How, <laughs> how insane is oh, that? I meant child Tantor and adult Tantor. <laughs> no, because I'm he just never grows about, out of the the hypochondriac thing. I'm but, just talking about in general. Yeah, no, I still appreciate him now as much as I ever did. I agree. I think Wayne Knight played it very well. I mean, I said it before. Tantor is my favorite character in the whole movie. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was. I had the same thought. I thought that was going to be a little more. Like, ooh, but apparently not. Apparently everyone loves him, so. He is you. He, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he is. He's my uh, spirit animal. You've said, is this water sanitary? About in every variation that you possibly could in every life situation. <laughs> so. True. That's true, yeah. And now I get to start telling people that they're emotionally constipated. So <laughs> it's perfect. I'm glad you guys brought that up because I knew that there, I didn't write it down and I knew I was going to forget it, but that is totally the line of the movie. All right, let's move on. I would love to see that because I know you guys are such Animal Kingdom buffs. I would seriously love if Joe Rohde had like planted that somewhere. Now I'm going to look. <laughs> what, the emotionally constipated? Yeah, you know how there's all like those random flyers and stuff in Animal Kingdom? I would love to see. <laughs> it's a great band name. <laughs> I would love to see an advertisement. Are you emotionally constipated? <laughs> All right. I, I, let's move on to the invisible touch. That is Phil Collins. This is what I've been waiting for because I just love Phil Collins. And spoiler, I love the music for this movie. I think that it was a smart decision for them to approach Phil Collins because... This is kind of where you're starting to see star power right for Disney films. Don't get me wrong. Love Howard Ashman and Alan Menken, but we really appreciate them now. At the time where they were writing songs for Disney, I don't think people really appreciated them for what they were doing because they weren't household names. They're not Tim Rice and Elton John or or a Phil Collins. The man has an EGOT. If you don't appreciate that, you need to reevaluate yourself. If I walked into any restaurant right now and said, do you know who Phil Collins is? Do you know who Elton John is? More people than not are going to raise their hand. And I go, do you know who Alan Menken is? They're going to go, who the hell is Alan Menken? I'm going to, he's got an EGOT. Well, that's his problem. <laughs> you know, they're not, <laughs> they're not going to know what it is. He's one of like eight people in the world. Do you know he has the second most Oscars after Walt freaking Disney? Do you think more people in this world know who Alan Menken is or Elton John? Elton John. Okay, this is my point. <laughs> I felt like this was a this was sort of pivotal because now you're starting to see, even as we're doing, you know, as we're progressing here, the Lin Manuel Mirandas. Right now, they're 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 dipping into the pool of talent of established names to write songs for their films. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. In this case, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody to argue that it doesn't work here. Starting with Two Worlds, I think that this is 
spoiler, it might be the best song in the movie, actually. And I think that it's an excellent open for the film. I would agree with that. And what I love is that, for me, it takes on two different meanings in the beginning of the film versus the end. Like, in the beginning, obviously, it's when Kala finds Tarzan. And the two worlds, one family, to me, means it's two different species, but she has this maternal instinct and she's going to take care of them come full circle to the end when now Jane and her father are living with Tarzan amongst the gorillas and Clayton has done this horrible thing by capturing them. It sort of takes on a different meaning in that, yes, it's two different species, but we are still all one family and we can cohabitate. And I think that's the brilliance of this song. And I love that they bring it back at the end as opposed to having a whole new one. So let me just get this clear. You both are saying on live podcasting that you think Two Worlds is the best song in Tarzan. Yeah. Oh, my God. Well, it's I mean, I love the lyrics. I love the music. But I don't think that anything is ever going to replace Trash in the Camp in my heart and (laughs) what it meant to me. Well, you know what I think it is for me? Because... This sounds the most like a Genesis song. And I think that's that's why I like it so much. Son of More Man so to than me. Strangers Like Me. Yeah, yeah, Son of Man and Strangers Like Me, those both sound more Genesis to me. Interesting, interesting. All right, well, I'm certainly interested in hearing your take on at least this one song before we move on to the rest of them. Well, that, I mean, that was just my take. Is It's not the best song. <laughs> I did feel like throughout the whole movie, I was like, oh, I love this one. And then it would get to the next one. I'm like, oh, this one's better. So it was just like the whole time because I knew this was going to come up and I knew I was going to have to pick one. I've kind of been dreading this all day because it is hard to pick. I don't think it's this one. I will say that. It is. It's very neck and neck. I do have to just say before we get too deep in the conversation, this was the first physical CD I ever bought for myself. It was the Tarzan soundtrack. I went to Walmart. <laughs> I paid seven ninety nine, and I came home and I did the booklet, and so it's very it means a lot to me here. And you've kind of crushed me already, saying two worlds is the best one. <laughs> I do agree with Catherine that I found myself doing the same thing. Like, oh my god, I forgot about the song. I love this. I love this. And to Brendan's point, uh, I I love that. It was not the first CD that I bought for myself, but my dad got it for me because obviously InSync was on it. But when he gave it to me, he was also he he did it because of You'll Be In My Heart. Tender moment. Yeah, I shed a few tears. All right. I was going to say, and I don't know if I'm mentally prepared for this yet. Well, here we are, because it's the next song <laughs> in the film. <laughs> this is the song that a lot of people credit for reviving Phil Collins' career. 19 weeks at number one. This song spent wow. 19 weeks at number one. I mean... It's You'll Be In My Heart. What else are you going to say? It's, it is, it's a wonderful song. Perhaps you make the case that this is the best song in the movie. And unfairly to the, to the song, I feel like part of the reason why I don't give it that honor is just because I heard it too many times. But it's what it is. It's, it's a beautiful song. It's the song of the entire film. It was debatably the song of that year. Um, and it definitely still holds up. It's still a great song. 
I agree. I think, and here I am saying my dad gave me the CD, but I think I'm a little desensitized to it because you... <laughs> terrible it's a good thing my dad doesn't listen to this show um it's it's because you heard it so much at the parks like you said 19 weeks and and god knows how many weddings weddings <laughs> yeah wedding weddings uh I love that. bar uh, uh weddings bat mitzvahs sweet, sweet, sweet 16s sweet quinceaneras 16, we like three years away from like, the sweet a, like 16s, any of yes. these parties that you went to this was always that song yeah however I think, I mean, do I like Two Worlds better? Yes. Do I like Trash in the Camp better? Yes, for different reasons. But I think the argument has to be made that this is the best song. Because if I'm going to commit to it on the podcast, to Brendan's point, then yes, it's got to be this one, right? I I think I have two categories. There's the best song, which is this one. And then my favorite song is a different one. But I do love that you also get just the short snippet of Glenn Close singing it. And I... When we watched it in the movie, I was like, there's no way that's actually Glenn Close. And I looked it up, and it's her. So I think that makes it even better. Yeah, I think maybe that was the first time I cried uh, watching this. No, I said first, not only. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I also think that this has to be it. To jump on, like, the cheesy bandwagon, I made a graduation uh, like presentation when my sister graduated high school and I put this song in there. So I fall into the category of overusing this song, but I think it's just because it's that good. Is this what's in Happily Ever After? Uh, no. Yeah. No, Trashing the Camp is in Happily Ever After. Doesn't it morph into this? I think it might be it, both of them. Yeah, it might. All right, you know what? We're going to jump a song and then go back to Son of Man because we're talking about Trashing the Camp here. I actually, my note is that other than Happily Ever After, it's a forgotten about classic. And that's not to say that it's not good. I think it's great. But when I hear it, I think about Happily Ever After before I think about this movie. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. But I, I don't have the InSync. I was listening to Kiss Records. I, I, I didn't have the InSync uh, connection that you did. Yeah, I mean, th- that's it. When I think about this movie, I think about this song, I think of NSYNC. And, and because they were so heavy with the promos, because it wasn't just them. I mean, I remember all of the promotions that they did at Animal Kingdom. Like, they would have the cast there. They had NSYNC there on, like, TGIF, you know, pumping this movie. Um, no, but... Uh, my love of NSYNC aside, I do really love the song. I love, like, the scat quality of it, uh, even though, you know, it's not actual words. I love the sequence in the film. I think it might have hit a little harder in the film if we had seen Turk doing this with just, like, random stuff lying around the jungle. Like, if we saw Turk just kind of being musically inclined, and then it's like, ooh, new toys, and then really went in and trashed the camp. Um, But that's really my only minor gripe with it. Otherwise, I love the song. And I love how involved that Phil Collins was with all of the arranging and the recording. Like, I don't think that Elton John stayed for every single recording after he was done with Circle of Life and Can You Feel the Love Tonight to make sure that the uh, score was executed properly. Yeah, not likely. Phil Collins was like in this banging pots and pans around and tantor's horn play is the best part of it 
But I mean, I think anybody who grew up with this movie, I mean, that you could still go do. I'm not going to do it live on air, but you could see, you know, make the scat noises and everybody gets it immediately, whether you saw the movie or not. And then it's also, you know, you drop a fork at our house and we bust out <laughs> trash in the camp. Let's do it. You know, make random noises. To, to I mean, I think it it has great staying power. It's It's a song that sticks with the audience for years. Yeah. I mean, and overall, it's just fun like it gives that trashing the camp scene the energy that it needs because i feel like without the song yeah it's funny to watch them trash everything and get into trouble but this kind of gives it like a i don't know like an edge like a fun edge i think towards the best part definitely <laughs> this is really like your br guest your friend like me you're under the sea in terms of being the fun number, yeah, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. Son of Man, I think um, I think for this film, it's a great message. I think it's sort of just a perfect message in general. Um, but I love how it really examines tripping, you know, tripping over oneself and growing up and, and learning and continuing to... Uh, grow and mature and and i mean it, it's that's really what this film is all about right so i think that it it really did uh play hand in hand very well with what they were showing you on the screen i love the song i love the lyric and i think yeah as far as being tied to the scene it's up there right next to you'll be in my heart as far as having something meaningful going on in just this beautiful sequence yeah, that's, that was my thought during the movie is that it progressed the story so well along that you really understood what Tarzan was thinking and feeling and what he was going through just through the beautiful voice of Phil Collins. This was a song that I had honestly completely forgotten about until we watched it today. And I was almost like, oh my gosh, this is my favorite. And then, of course, I had to take a step back. But, I mean, it's up there. Strangers like me. Unpopular opinion. I don't think I'm allowed to ride with him in the golf cart. Um, <laughs> it's very good. It is a good song. My issue with it is that it reads a little too much, hey, this is what you're watching in this movie that you're watching. That's my only gripe with it. I mean, I think you can sort of argue that any of the songs on this soundtrack do that exact same thing. And, you know, they do sort of hold up the, Hey, you're looking at a movie sign. Uh, this was one. I shame. I'm getting, I don't play golf, but I think I'm getting kicked out of that cart too. Um, uh, this was one that I forgot about. And then when we watched it, I was like, Oh my God. So yeah. Forgotten classic. Definitely. Not forgotten over here. Brendan is fist movie. pumping over here. Best song in the whole movie. And why? I mean, I you got to elaborate, I, I feel like. I, I don't have any other reasons. Just great. Just wonderful. Wouldn't change a thing about it. Wouldn't change its placement in the movie. I can listen to it at any point in time, and I immediately enjoy it. So we're going to listen to it on repeat now? Is that what I'm hearing? Correct. I don't know. I mean, overall... I, I don't want to say it's just like an average song, but it like when you match it up with some of these others, 
I wouldn't rate it, I guess, as high as you. Sorry. Fake fans. <laughs> I'll ride with you in the golf cart. <laughs> All right. I think time for final say here. We're going to let our guests go first. Of course. I mean, this is one of those. I mean, I think for me, I was seven years old when this came out. So it's like the perfect, perfect age group. Mulan before this, you know, I enjoyed it, but I didn't really grasp it. I think just this coming out a year later, it was like that perfect age for me where it, it made sense. I went and bought the soundtrack. It was something that when we always bring it back to the theme parks, because that's, you know, our obsession more than anything, there's something I could go to Animal Kingdom and I could see Tarzan rocks and see representation there and I could meet Jane in the park. So I I love this film. I love the soundtrack. I love, you know, the message behind it. I think it's just like I view it kind of like up where it's one of those that every single time you watch it, it just hits you right in the gut in the best way possible. If there's anything that I don't like, I still have questions about. It's kind of what you mentioned. Where are the other traitors? What happened to them? <laughs> and then Tantor just, I guess he was adopted by the gorillas or is he just walking home at night? I don't know how he just escaped uh, elephant life, but everything else, I still feel like it holds up the same way that I viewed it as a kid. Yeah. I feel like overall, so we've been obsessed with this movie forever, kind of like you said. As soon as we thought we would ever get to talk about a movie with you guys, we hoped it would be this one. But I feel like I enjoyed it so much more as an adult. I feel like I picked up a lot more on just the range of emotions in one movie, which I don't know if any other movie can quite top the range of emotions in this one. Uh, just because I feel like they bring you zero to a 100 all the time. And just like the little jokes, the humor, the, I don't want to call it, it's not gory, but the shocking parts, I guess, like we've experienced today. I just feel like it has it all. It was the end of the Renaissance, which makes it perfect. I totally agree with what both of you guys are saying. Um, I feel like, when I was younger, I mean, this movie was definitely all about sync. That's not to say that I didn't enjoy it or I didn't appreciate it. Uh, I did, but this is one where I go back and get so much more out of it as an adult. Uh, this film is so much more layered than I ever gave it credit for. Um, the animation is just so beautiful, which I definitely didn't appreciate enough when I was 13. Uh, and it's just, it's so balanced. It, it does hit very heavy with how graphic it is at time, but it really does have so much humor and so much heart. Uh, and I would actually give this one a perfect. Yeah, I, I had this as near perfect for me. It's, it's not there, but it's as close as you're going to get without it being there, mostly because... The Kerchek character to me, like, I just have problems sympathizing for him. Um, and at times, I feel like I'm watching a video game. But with that said, I think it's a great means of introducing this character to kids. I think that this is a great way to introduce Tarzan to a younger audience. I think it's a, a great way of keeping a storied 
see i'm not going to call it franchise but it's a storied series of films that were so revolutionary and so impressive for their time when they came out you know in their original run to kind of bring that full circle and bring it around i think this serves such a such a purpose in keeping that iconic character alive and i mean yeah it's 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 layered it's dramatic it's heartfelt it's funny it's sad I think, Brendan, the fact that you at seven years old went and it was the first movie soundtrack that you bought, you know, it speaks a lot about how, you know, I think this, and and the fact that you can still listen to it now, I think the soundtrack transcends generations. I mean, I'd love to tell you that the first movie soundtrack I went out and bought was this. My first movie soundtrack that I bought, I was nine years old. I bought the Batman Forever soundtrack. Because of course you did. Because... (laughs) Because of Kiss from a yep. Rose by yep. Seal. Mm-hmm. I had to have that because that was the song everybody was listening to. I wish I would have bought this soundtrack. You know what I'm saying? Um, but it's just everything about this movie completely holds up. And I'm, I don't think this is an unpopular opinion. And I also don't think they'd necessarily tackle it because then it's just another Tarzan movie. I don't want a live action remake of this. I don't want it. You're it's right. But can they? I suspect you're right. Unless they cast like Tony Hawk or something, it is going to be just another live action, not even another live action remake. It's just going to be another Tarzan because we've seen Tarzan. I mean, Tarzan, let's not forget, was a part of the great movie ride. May it rest in peace. So this film has been around since like the 40s and it's been remade and remade and remade. I think where it stands is perfect that you did the reverse and you did it as an animation. But this is definitely an underrated classic. And I, I want to see it in the parks more. I mean, I know they had the show at one point, they had the Broadway show, which I think I'm going to kick myself forever for not getting to see on Broadway. But I just feel like you really don't see enough of Tarzan in the parks. Why do you think not even from a parks perspective, but just from like a movie, uh, you know, appreciation perspective, why does it seem like it gets overshadowed? Is it because it was right behind Mulan and Mulan did so well? I just feel like it all, you see people always do the list of most underappreciated or uh, underrated movies. This is always on there, but it's like, if everybody's rating it underrated, does everybody think highly of it? (laughs) I think the reason why it becomes this forgotten classic is because it's another Tarzan movie. You know what I'm saying? But, but it's not. It's it's a great Tarzan movie, but there's 20 Tarzan movies. So this is another Tarzan movie. For me personally, I think it was my age because I was 13. And not that I've ever really ever grown out of Disney but I was definitely getting into different genres of movies at this point. And like, this is one that pulled me back because I wanted to see what NSYNC did for it. Um, I don't know that I would have had that much interest had they not been a part of the soundtrack. So for me, I, I definitely think it was the demographic. Just to, you know, this is a whole other tangent, but I mean, you can say they've done this movie so many times over the years since the books were originally written, but like Peter Pan's the same way. That's not stopping them from doing Peter Pan. Peter Pan's been done every single way you can possibly think from Peter being the villain to 
into everything that you could think of, and they're still going to do it again. So I just think, you know, I guess we know how you guys feel about it. You know how we feel about it. But uh, I I think they'll eventually get to this one, especially because it has animals, and they love doing CGI animals. No, that's a fair point. And even, I mean, Cinderella, look at how many times that's been told and retold. I mean, they did the live action, and then on the heels of that, they did Into the Woods and Cinderella's in Into the Woods. And that's just Disney. They also had the Brandy one. Then... Hilary Duff. Hilary Duff, Selena Gomez. I don't know if hers was Disney, though. But, it, yeah, told and retold. But you could make the argument that this is the best version. I would make that argument. Uh, yeah, I think you could. Um, <laughs> you, you could make A severe the argument lack of Brendan Fraser, though. <laughs> That's not something I ever thought I'd hear anybody say on <laughs> Monoreal Radio. Well, brace yourself, because uh, when we have to start getting into the Touchstone movies, we're going to review Encino Man. You want to come on for that one, guys? I think they're good. Oh, Encino Man. Was that with Paulie Shore, too? He met, I don't know. Paulie Shore, he might have been an Encino Man. I don't remember. I don't either, we'll but I know it it's eventually. Brendan Fraser. Oh, yeah. Listen, there's there's a lot of Touchstone stuff that when we eventually start digging into that, it, it's going to get weird. It's going to get weird on Monoreal. That's for sure. Wait, was Jungle to Jungle Disney? Yes. Uh, Sam Huntington. No, we no, haven't done that yet. I can't wait for that's book one that I've yet. been wanting book to it. get to. <laughs> you want it? We'll book it. It's yours. <laughs> Look yes. at her face. I don't. I don't know what you're talking about. I've never seen this. Wait, oh, wait you've never what? seen? Okay. You've never, okay. Hold. Don't. That's great. I want. I want this authentic reaction. Do oh, your best to hold. Listen, we might have to do a live watch. Catherine, it has it. You, you've gone, tw- you've gone like, you've, right now. Catherine, you've gone like 23 years. You can go a couple of more months. How flattering that Sean thinks you're 23. <laughs> no, I'm talking about since the release of the film. Oh, okay. Um, I just pulled it out. Jungle to Jungle has a 19 on Rotten Tomatoes. That is disrespectful. <laughs> 5.2 on IMDb. Come on, people. I'm intrigued. This sounds great. All right, we're going to get there for certain. Okay, so we know we know you're booked on that one. But while people are holding over and waiting for you guys to return to Monoreal Radio, why don't you guys let our listeners know where they can find Detour to Neverland and everything that you guys are doing because you're still speaking with content creators and you're still speaking to people about trip reports, but now you're really getting into the storytelling. And your storytelling series oh, are fantastic. They're the best. They're so good. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah. yeah, we've kind of shifted storytelling, uh, looking at rides and attractions and now restaurants in the parks and just trying to get a better grip on what the story that the Imagineers are trying to tell us or what they're trying to immerse you into is something that we've really dove into lately so we just wrapped up uh three parts on pirates of the caribbean which one might say is too many parts there's never too many no but we had a blast doing it and so that's kind of where our focus is right now you can find us on all podcast platforms and on social media by just searching detour to neverland our website is detour to neverland.com you can find the links to all their stuff there most recently we're doing youtube which is weird but it's fun yeah, we never thought we'd do that, but it's just another way to share that storytelling, really. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us tonight. We really appreciate it. Well, congratulations again on 150. That's a big deal, and we are honored to be a part of it. Always. Thank you guys so much. And uh, we are going to be back in just a few minutes because 
We got some Disney news to discuss, but first, a quick break. Hey everyone, this is Brian down here in South Florida. I'm about two hours south of Disney, and when it comes to planning vacations, Jackie's the way to go. I have a quick story for you. When it came to booking my family vacation for my two-year-old daughter and my wife, you know, like everybody, I immediately went to the internet, started scouting prices, compiling lists, and uh, building my perfect vacation at Disney. Just out of curiosity, I reached out to Jackie. She mentioned she was uh, booking vacations for many people. So I gave her my uh, list, my itinerary. She looked it over, and when she came back to me, she gave me her recommendations in regards to the parks. However, she also had new pricing associated with it. Um, I've learned that going on my own doesn't necessarily mean that I'll be getting the best pricing. Jackie was able to beat the majority of the pricing within my list and saving me a ton of money, but she has the insight and the connections to do so. On top of that, it was stress-free, so all my vacations in the future are gonna be through her because I don't have to think about it. She plans it, I give her some information in regards to what I wanna do, what my plans are for that week when I go visit Disney, and she'll make it happen and create the itinerary for me. She's a market expert. Myself, I go into a park, I immediately hop on the next line, I get a few fast passes, and at the end of the day, I don't accomplish everything like I would want to. She advised on which rides to attack first, which restaurants I should schedule on what day, and how to properly allocate my time to maximize my vacation. It was an amazing process. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Way to go, Monoreal. Keep it going. So if you would like completely free assistance planning your Disney vacation, you can get in touch with me through any of our social media outlets at Monoreal Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Or you can email me directly at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. News this week is brought to you by Karma and Kismet Designs. If you're looking for that Disney-inspired art for your home, perhaps some stationary greeting cards, apparel, or maybe you are looking for some new branding and graphic design, perhaps some media kits. Kelly has you covered. Plus, listeners of the show get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Be sure to see everything that she's got to offer at KarmaAndKismetDesigns.com. That's Karma, the letter N, KismetDesigns.com. I am so... Excited, relieved, elated, whatever, you find the words, to live in a world where, once again, we can take the monorail to Epcot Center. I'm excited because that was actually one of my first memories of Epcot, is that sound, that whoosh. Yes. Because you're so close to it. You know, not everybody takes the monorail to Magic Kingdom and you don't necessarily have to pass right underneath it. Whereas with Epcot, you do to enter that park. Right. So that was something that I really didn't even realize how much I was missing until we were there in October and that noise was gone. That is one of those things that just takes me right back to my childhood. And the visual of a monorail just... Flying by Spaceship Earth is quintessential Epcot. Like you said, it's a childhood memory. It's something that is so familiar to you. It felt pretty naked without it. Yeah. But that is back at Epcot, as is the monorail with monoreal. Yes. Speaking of the monorail, we have the official dates of our bar crawl during our trip in November. Uh, We're going to be... Crawling from the Grand Floridian to the Contemporary to the Polynesian on Sunday, November 14th. 
Uh, so we'll have more information on our website and we're going to create an event on our Facebook page uh, with the official time that we're going to start. And I think I'm pretty sure we're going to start at the Grand Floridian. But if that changes, we'll we'll keep you posted. Yeah, make sure that you guys are following the Facebook event. All right, let's move on to some Disney Plus news here. Emmy nominations came out last week and it should come as no surprise to anybody that Disney cleaned up. Well, we hope they're going to clean up at the awards. Well, at least with the nominations, right? They have numbers. So Falcon and the Winter Soldier have five nominations, including outstanding special visual effects in a season or movie. That makes sense. I mean, in terms of visual effects, the show was really, really well done. The cinematography across the board was incredible. It was beautifully shot. 12 primetime Emmy nominations, including Outstanding Variety Special for Hamilton. Again, this should surprise nobody. Okay, wait, 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 wait. I I have a few things to say about this. I was actually hoping we were going to skip over this one. Oh, okay. Hamilton deserves every award that it's gotten for Broadway. This play is five years old. All you did was film it. I love it. It's incredible. I can't even tell you how many times, you know, if if this was an award for the most times watched on Disney Plus, my numbers alone probably would make them win. But I don't think, and maybe this is biased because I work in television, I don't think it's right to set a video camera up to tape a story that's already told in one medium and then give it nominations for an award. Counterpoint 2020. What other variety shows were happening in 2020? SNL, towards the end of the year, started going live again. So, I mean, yeah, it could be up against that. Um, but it's, it's not up against the Disney family sing-along. I'm pretty confident in that. I, don't, I just think that we're really reaching here. Perhaps, but it got the nominations. WandaVision got 23 nominations, including Outstanding Limited or Anthology Series. Now you're talking. And I think there's a there's a real chance that it's going to win. I think Elizabeth Olsen can win. I think Paul Bettany can win. I think this one really does have a good chance of taking home a lot of hardware, actually. Yeah, I mean, we've mentioned on the show that we did love WandaVision a lot. It was one of the most enjoyable viewing experiences we've had in recent years because the way they released it episodically and the excitement that it drew up every week, it was so much fun to be a part of. It was so well done, but the ending was a little bit disappointing as was the plant of Pietro that really went nowhere. So, we still kind of have mixed feelings about it. Eventually, we will do a review of it, but I'm kind of in my feels about it a little bit. But that's not to take away from how incredibly well produced that show was. And the fact that they, you know, really did their homework as far as researching all of the old shows that inspired this. Uh, it was just a love letter to television. And for that much alone, it deserves to clean up. For sure. And the last one that took home the most nominations of all of them, including Outstanding Drama Series, and I'm going to say this right now, 
It's not only the best show on Disney+, Plus; it's the best show on television, The Mandalorian. This absolutely shocks nobody. Of all of them, I actually think, if, I'm, if you're making a prediction now, even though it only has one more nomination than WandaVision, I think The Mandalorian is what is going to take home the most Emmy Awards for Disney. It's incredible. I I would agree with you on best show. If not for the end of WandaVision, I would have said that was the best. Uh, But I'll agree with you on that for now. And speaking of Disney Plus shows, we have a brand new one that is coming out tomorrow. Excuse me. Behind the Attraction. This is the one that Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, is producing. And I'll be honest with you, I'm, I was very excited about it because I love the behind-the-scenes stories. I mean, we talked a little while ago about how great Brennan and Catherine did uh, and, and are doing with their storytelling series. But I, I wondered how much could you elaborate on things that we already saw in the Imagineering story. But based on the trailer that we got this week... Tonally, this has a completely different feel. I'm really glad they did it as two separate shows because, I mean, first of all, the Imagineers deserve their own highlight. But the Imagineer story, it's such a history. And this is really getting into those details that you love going through an attraction queue and, you know, the storytelling of the ride. I think it would have done a disservice to both if they had combined them into one series either that or you'd have episodes that are like two hours long because right. there it, it's just too much so i love that we're getting two different things i love that the rock who is such a disney fan uh produced this and he's all about it and it's perfect timing with jungle cruise coming out i don't think that that was a coincidence no not in the very least is this one that you would be willing to wake up at three o'clock in the morning to see Because people did it for Wanda, we did it for the last episode of Wanda, and because we did it for the last episode of Wanda, we haven't done it for any other show on Disney+, Plus. but is this one worth waking up at 3 in the morning for? I would do it, yeah. So would I. I 100% would get up at 3 o'clock in the morning to see this. I don't know that if they drop the entire series that I'm going to be able to do that and then go to work, but I would at least get one episode in and then snooze a little bit more. Yeah, for sure. And we're interested in knowing what you have to say. Is this something worth getting up super early for? Are you interested in it? Uh, How much did you uh, anticipate after you saw the Imagineering story? How do you feel about the Emmy nominations? You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. Thank you guys for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio and for 150 episodes. And thank you so much again to our friends Brennan and Catherine from Detour to Neverland for joining us today. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate us on your podcast platform of choice, whether that be verbal or any other podcasting platform. Be sure to follow us on the social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok at Monoreal Radio. And as we mentioned before, we do have the website monorealradio.com, and that is the home for the show. And Keep an eye on that because that, as well as Facebook, is going to have all the information for the upcoming Monorail with Monoreal. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. 
On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.